James chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 9. This is the epistle of applied Christianity. The epistle of applied Christianity. What does this mean that James here is exhorting the believers that if you have real faith, it will show. If you have real saving faith, if you say you trust the Lord Jesus, your life will show it. It's like that song, if, you're, if you really love the Lord, then your life will what? Surely show it. <laughs> and he's saying your life will surely show it, that you love him. That your faith is not just by profession, but it, your faith is by possession. That means that you live out the things that you say. It's, a, it's the difference between someone that would just proclaim it and then someone that would live it. And even as we go there to verse 9 of chapter 1, I want you to know this. God knows what you believe by the way that you live your life. Not about what you say, but how you live your life. So he's encouraging them when it comes to a faith that works, when it comes to a faith that is living, that is real, that is active, a genuine faith works in trials and works in temptations. That is what a real faith looks like. Even during trials, even during temptations, if your faith is real, it will work. And what are some encouragements that he wrote as he opened this letter? There in verse 2, he says, count. Make sure that as you face trials, you must have a joyful attitude first. Value the trials. Know that God is using them for your good and his glory. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Then he uses in verse 3, no. What does that mean? Have an understanding mind. Know that your, the testing of your faith is producing patience, maturity, and that the mature person is patient in trials. But then in verses 4 and 5, he, says, he uses the word let. Let God do what he wants to do in your life. Don't resist God. Don't resist God's purpose, his plan, his path for your life. Suffering right now is equipping you to serve him. God is using the trial to equip you. And you may have not chosen that trial for yourself, but God chose it for you to prepare you. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. He said it this way, God gets his best soldiers from the highlands of affliction. Just think about that. God would draw his best soldiers from the highlands of affliction. So he says, have a joyful attitude have an understanding mind in trials, have a surrendered will, know God is doing something, don't resist it. Let God do what he wants to do in your life, submit and obey. And then also believing heart from verses six through eight, ask God for wisdom. Sometimes in the trial, what we think that we need is deliverance. Or in the trial, we think we need more money. <laughs> in the trial, we think we need better health. But you know what we truly need in every trial? We need the wisdom of God to face trials. And he says, as you're going through trials, ask God for wisdom so that you don't waste the trial, but you enlist it to work for you and in you. And when you ask, don't be double-minded. Don't be unstable. Don't, don't debate God's wisdom. Don't doubt when you're receiving wisdom from God. Make up your mind that you're going to trust him. 
Don't be the unstable person that is going from God to the world, that, that is confused about what you're going to trust, whether you're going to trust the world or you're going to trust the word of God. Trust God's wisdom without being unstable. Trust his sovereignty, that you know that he's in control, that, that he is over all things, that, that you are not like the waves that are being tossed to and fro by circumstances. You know, it was John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, that describes the person that is double-minded or unstable as Mr. Facing Two Waves. Just think about that. How oftentimes are we that person, Mr. Facing Two Waves? You're facing one way one, at one moment, and then you're facing a different direction at a different moment. But the person that can't stand trials in life is because they truly don't trust the Lord. And I'll tell you, you can't trust God if you don't know him. If you don't know that he is omniscient, that he knows everything, he's all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere, that he's omnipotent, the character, the attributes of God, that he's all-powerful, then you will not be able to trust God in the trial. We have to ask the Lord, Lord, give me wisdom. And now he goes from wisdom to loving God, to enduring in the trial, to obeying God in the trial that God is producing something in your faith to mature you and to work for you. So he moves from God's testings and trials come with a purpose to God's testing and trials come with a profit. And you know what we ought to do as we're going through trials? Depend on God. Don't depend on human understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't depend on self or your status or your money. God has a way of leveling us in our trials to humble us, to look to him. And there he says, James, whether you're rich or you're poor, notice this, you both need the same thing. You know what that is? Wisdom. It doesn't matter what place you are in life right now, regardless of the place that you find yourself in, in the trial, you both need the same thing. You know what it's that, that you need? The wisdom of God. Trials are not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what you have. And notice there, beginning in verse 9, I'm going to invite you to stand on your feet with me so that we read from 9 to verse 18 this morning. And I'll read the odd verse. You read the even verse out loud together. James 1.9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning.
Let's pray together one more time. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would speak to us through it, Lord, that we would learn from the trials, that we would love you, that we would live for you. Lord, open up our minds, our hearts, to understand what you have for us. In Jesus' name, together we would say, amen. You may be seated. He begins there by teaching us what we are to learn from God in the trials, learning from God in the trials, beginning in verse 9. And one thing that trials do for us, they remind us of eternity. Remember that today, trials remind us of eternity. Trials remind us that we're not living for our life here on this earth, that we're living for the life that we have in Christ Jesus in eternity with him. So he says this, notice verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Even though the brother here who is a Christian, he mentions a believer, a man of God, a woman of faith. Notice what he says. Let the lowly brother, the humble in circumstance, the person that doesn't have much, the person that is struggling through trials and maybe they're financial. What can that person learn? What can he get? What can they draw from the trial? Notice what he says. Well, that person that is undergoing humble circumstances, let them glory. Let them be joyful, even in their situation. Let them rejoice. Let them boast. Let them be glad in his exaltation. And notice what he's reminding that person, that in your trials, you're reminded that you have a high position in God. It is God who has exalted you that you should remember even in your humble circumstance that you are a child of God, that you are a part of God's family, that you are a part of God's children. And although you may be physically poor, trials remind us that we're spiritually rich. You see why this is so important when it comes to perspective? Let those that are undergoing difficult circumstances, those that are poor, those that have humble circumstances that they would rejoice that their status is not one here on the earth, but they are spiritually rich in Christ Jesus. Let them be reminded in their trials that their possessions are spiritual, that in God you have true riches, that in God you have a position in his kingdom. That's exactly what we need to remember as we go through trials, that it doesn't matter what we have, what our possessions are, but that most importantly, that we're walking with Christ Jesus. So remind yourself, if you're going through trials where you are in need, notice this, you may be hungry, but you still have the bread of life. You may be thirsty, but you are still drinking of the living water. And God has produced the the lowliness in that person, a heart that keeps them open to the things of God. So remind yourself, that person that is going through trials, that is of a lowly state, understand the reality that the low in Christ are truly high. Understand that your position is in Christ Jesus, that that your perspective is that you have laid up treasures for yourself in heaven. It's too easy to get distracted and discouraged and think, well, I don't have much and I'm going through trials. Therefore, I want to disobey. I want to get out of God's will. But he says, no, listen, pay attention to this. The lowly brother, remember, your riches are not here on earth. 
Your status is not here on earth. You belong to Christ. You're his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. Your position, your status is in the kingdom of God. That is where it matters most. In fact, in Romans 8, 17, notice what Paul tells the church of Rome. And if children, then heirs. If you're a child of God, and notice what you also are. You're an heir. You have an inheritance. It's spiritual. That is where your riches are at. That's where they're found. And indeed, we suffer with him. If we suffer with him, we also shall be glorified together. What do we learn here? That we are heirs with a spiritual inheritance that comes from Christ Jesus. He says the same thing to the church of Ephesus. In Ephesians 2, 6, he says, and he's raised us up together to make us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's your position. That's your status. It's a spiritual one. Don't get caught up with what you have here on earth, especially through trials, but remind yourself your exaltation is spiritual. That in the ages to come, Ephesians 2, 7, he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Reminding them, your identity, your status, your blessing, your possessions, your riches are all found in who Christ Jesus is and what he has done for you. This is what we truly live for. In 1 Peter 2.9, notice what Peter tells the church, but you're a chosen generation. Remind yourself of that. A royal priesthood. That's what God says about you in his word. We are his royal priesthood, his own special people, his holy nation, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous lights. And he speaks there to the lowly brother, to the Christian. Remind yourself where your riches are at. But then he also speaks to the rich. And he says this in verse 10, but the rich in his humiliation. Now, as you read verse 10 and 11, you think that he goes a little harder on the rich. <laughs> but notice how he says this, but the rich in his humiliation. Glory in that God is humbling you through trials. One of the things that the rich or those that abound or those that have resources understand very quickly as they would, the Bible would say, is that money doesn't buy people out of their problems. You're still going to go through problems. In fact, many of us heard the saying, more money, more problems. And he says, those that are rich, notice what's going to happen. You glory in your humiliation. You glory that even though you're rich and you're going through trials, notice what you're learning. You're learning something different. You're, you're learning contentment. You're learning to depend on God. You're learning humility that you should not trust those earthly riches. You should rejoice that you have certain riches also in Christ Jesus that can't wither and that can't fade away. That your trust shouldn't be in your resources and your possessions and your bank account and your 401k. All of those things devaluate. How many times do we think that we're secure in life because of the things that we possess? We're not living for those things. So for the rich, he says this, remember in the same way, your security is not in this world, your security is in the Lord. Remember that, that is our security, is in Christ Jesus. 
And in verse 11, he develops that by saying this, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass, its flowers fall, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Can you not remember? Don't you think? Would you learn from this? In the same way, as you see the sunrise and its brilliance and the heat, what happens? It, it dries up the grass. The flowers fade away after a while. In the same way, notice, the rich will fade away in his pursuits. The rich will fade away in its achievements and your successes. All those things will pass away. He gives this illustration of the grass and the flowers to explain the brevity and uncertainty of life. You may have so much, but notice it can be taken away in one moment. Just the way that God gave it to you, remember this, he can also take it away. And he says, the rich, remind yourself of this. Don't trust that earthly status. That will pass away fast. Trust in God. After having explained both to the poor and then to the rich, what is he saying? It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor. You will both suffer. And you know what the trials are going to do for you as a believer? As a believer, the trials should realign your priorities. All of a sudden, the things that you thought were important, they're not important anymore as you're going through trials. The, the things that you value, you don't value them as much anymore because you're finding out what is really important. Your priorities are realigned spiritually. In fact, what is he having them look to? Eternity. And he's saying, I want you to know so that you're able to accept everything from the hand of God who makes no mistakes. Know this today as you've come in, maybe you're going through a trial. Do not put confidence in your situation right now. Put your confidence in Christ Jesus. Accept everything from the hand of God who makes no mistakes. If you believe he's in control, if you believe he's in charge, that he's sovereign, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's everywhere, that you can accept as you give in your life to him everything from God's hand who makes no mistakes, and he gives to us only what is good because he is so gracious. That's the very same thing that Paul had. He had confidence in that. It doesn't matter what I have. It doesn't matter what I don't have because I'm in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4, 11, look at the mindset of a person that's sold out to Jesus. He says, not that I speak in regard to need. I don't care, and I'm not telling you this because I need something, for I've learned whatever state I am to be content. I know what it's like to have and not have. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then what does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is exactly the same mindset and heart and vision that James here is reminding the church that you would live for Christ Jesus that you would receive everything with a humble attitude, that you would trust in the Lord, that you would let him have his way in your life, that you would let him develop your character. Why? Because the last thing you want to do is handle suffering and pride. It's going to hold you back. It's going to regress your spiritual growth. It's going it's to kill that which what God is wanting to do in you spiritually. So he's reminding them what takes you through trials is not your material possessions. You know what takes you through trials? 
your spiritual resources. You start to find out what really is important in life. You know what trials come? They come in two forms. They come in tests from God that he's already explained to us. And then they come as temptations. A trial will come either as a test or as a temptation. And you have to know the difference. So that you learn the value in the trial or so that you're able to resist the temptation. You know what Satan will do? He will try to tempt you to tear you down. But God will test you only to lift you up. God will test your faith to prove your faith and then to improve your faith again. That's what God wants to do with our faith. He wants to make it better. He, he wants to humble us. He wants to have us wait on him, have us look to him. And how we face temptations, as he describes there from verses 12 to verse 18, tells us what kind of faith we have. I like what Warren Worsby says. He says, sometimes trials are testings on the outside, and sometimes trials are temptations on the inside. Which one is it that you're going through today so that you would be reminded today to be submitted to God? Notice how he says this, that we ought to love God under trials now, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And notice what he's saying here in regards to remaining obedient in the trial. You see, I heard recently the worst thing that can happen to a Christian is not suffering. And I want you to remember that this morning. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is not suffering. You know the worst thing that can happen to a Christian? Disobedience. And this is what he's saying. Remain obedient to God in the trial. Oh, how happy. Blessed is the man. The blessing that comes to this person who what? Endures temptation. Two things he's already told us in 12 verses in this epistle. One thing that you need in trials is wisdom. The second thing that you need in trials is endurance. Would you circle the word endurance there in your Bible that you would remember? Maybe God right now is telling you, endure this trial. Stay submitted. Don't disobey. Don't doubt God. Don't drift away. Don't turn away from God. Blessed is that man who patiently endures temptation or trials, or suffering, or who perseveres, who remains obedient, who submits to God's will, who not only is wise, but also endures. This is the quality of the man and woman of God in the trial. They're wise, and they're enduring. The man of God and woman of God in the trial. Now notice, every trial has the potential of becoming a temptation depending upon your response. Do you remember the nation of Israel through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? They turned trials into what? Temptations. And it, it took a 10, 11-day journey, 40 years to get to the promised land. Because every trial, every test, they turned it into a temptation. It's important that we don't turn a test, a trial into a temptation. Notice how you do that. You doubt God. You doubt God's goodness. You disobey God. You turn away from him to sin. You, you begin to entertain temptation in your heart and in your mind. Temptation is this. 
It's simply said the opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. That's what temptation is. Accomplish a good thing in a bad way out of the will of God. So he says this, blesses the man who remains submitted through temptation, through trials, who remains obedient. For when he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Notice this should be the prize. This should be the goal. Our eyes should be focused on this, the crown of life. Yes, you're going through suffering. Yes, you're going through temptation. Yes, there are trials, but notice your eyes are on the prize. What's the prize? The crown of life. The person who endures is approved. You know what approved looks like? It means that you took the test and you passed the test. And as we mentioned last week, if you take the test and you fail the test, then you have to take the test again. But blessed is the man who remained obedient in the trial because he's going to be approved. His faith is going to be tested and then considered trustworthy. That's what it means to be approved, considered trustworthy. It's the same word that they would use during this time of testing coins and metals and goals to test how genuine they were or authentic. Is this real? Is this gold real? Are these metals real? Are, are these coins authentic? After having taken them through that test, they would say they're approved to be authentic. When your faith goes through the trial, then it is proved to find out whether or not it's authentic. And the faith that is approved, the faith that passed the test, will receive the crown of life. This is the reward which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's comforting when we read God's word in verse 12 and you find out that even in trials, you know what God has there for you? Promises. Oftentimes we think that promises only come through times of blessing. Well, God is so faithful to give you a promise to hold on to while you're suffering. Today, hold on to God's faithfulness. Today, would you hold on to God's promises? He's going to give you a crown of life. That word crown is that Greek word Stephanos, which means the crown of a victor that has been crowned at the end of the Olympic Games because he's won the race. Blesses the man who endures temptation, who has victory over the trial, victory over the temptation, who remains submitted to God because he'll receive the crown of reward to those who love him. What's the motivation here to endure? You know what the motivation for endurance is? That you love him. <laughs> There it is, to those who love him. Our love for God is the outcome of our faith for him. If you love God, notice, you're going to trust him. You're going to endure. Love is the essence of faith. And he's saying this is the prize that awaits the person who loves God. Love motivates us to count it all joy. Love lets God do what he needs to do in our hearts. Love understands with the mind that he's working out a better plan in his path for our lives. Love asks for wisdom without doubts. That's why it says there's a reward for those who endure because they love him. What does love do also? Your love for God keeps you faithful so that you don't doubt him. Your love for God keeps you obedient in his will so that you don't disobey. Your love for him keeps you conscious of his word. 
Your, your love for him keeps you submitted to what he has said. That reward is there for those that love him. But notice the keys here from verses 13 and verse 15 regarding overcoming temptation. Because you will be tempted. Temptation also is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how many times you open your Bible or whether or not you come to church. I want you to know you will be tempted. You, you will find yourself in a place of temptation. How you respond says a lot about your faith. And in order to overcome temptation, remember one thing first. Consider God's judgment when it comes to sin. You want to overcome temptation? Then consider God's judgment when it comes to sin. And he says this there in verse 1. Let no one say, not, not no one, nobody, when he is tempted, not if he's tempted, because no one is exempt from temptation, but let no one say when he is tempted. We all will be tempted. When you're tempted, do not say this, I'm tempted by God. And notice those quotations there. It's almost like he's quoting someone. You know who it sounds like? Us. The reason why he says I'm tempted by God is because in our sin nature, you know what we want to do? We want to shift the blame to other people. God is tempting me. Other people are tempting me. When we mess up, when we sin, when we fail, you know what the first thing in our sin nature is to do? Pass the buck to someone else. It was their fault as to why I went into temptation. So when you're tempted, do not try to excuse your sin. Don't blame other people for your disobedience. Husbands, I want to tell you this. Do not blame your wife for your disobedience. Wives, do not blame your husbands for your disobedience. Do not try to blame God or excuse your sin or justify your sin or put the ownership of your actions on someone else. Now, why does he say that? Because from the beginning of time, Adam did the very thing that this verse says. Do you remember when God told, went up to Adam in the garden? What did he tell Adam? Adam, what happened? Where, where have you been? Why'd you sin? Why didn't you obey me? And you know what Adam did? The first thing, like a loving husband, it was the woman you gave me. <laughs> you just think what Adam was thinking. I mean, you could have picked any woman. Why'd you pick her, God? Seriously? The very thing we want to do, always shift the blame to someone else. And then what did Eve do? You know what, God? It actually wasn't even me. It was the devil. It was a serpent. He tricked me. He lied to me. He told me something else. When you're tempted, don't shift the blame to someone else. You can't say it was God. I heard a story of a little boy in Sunday school that was learning the very thing about Adam and Eve, and he heard that the Lord put a deep sleeve on Adam. He took from his rib and made a woman. Then he closed the side brought the woman to the man and gave her to be his wife. On the way home, he was in the backseat of the car, the little kid, and he starts to grunt, touch his side because his side hurts. And his mom says, honey, what's wrong? He says, mom, my side hurts. I think I'm having a wife. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Don't, do not blame God. Don't blame anyone else. Notice what 
we read in God's word. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You have to learn this about God. Know who God is. He will test you, but he will never tempt you. It's not the same thing. It is against God's character. He is too holy. He's too loving to tempt us. God never ordains sin. God never approves of sin. He's the standard of holiness. And holiness means to be separated from sin. And if he is unable to sin, what does that mean? That he's unable to tempt you. He cannot do it. It's against his character. It's against his nature. It's against his attributes. Verse 13, know this about God. He can't be tempted by evil. He's holy. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. This is why we pray when we look to God, we pray, Lord, lead us from temptation, not to temptation. He can't lead us to temptation. He doesn't do that. He leads us away from it. Jesus taught us to pray this way in Matthew 6, 13. What does he say? And do not lead us into what? Temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. You know what this means? Do not lead us into temptation. What this means here is don't allow us to come under the sway of temptation that it will overpower us and cause us to sin. Lord, don't allow us to come under the sway of temptation to the point where it overpowers us and it causes us to sin. Lord, lead us not into temptation. This is the prayer that Jesus taught. This is the prayer that Jesus answers. Every day, wake up, Lord, please. Would you not allow me to come under the sway of temptation so that it would overpower me and cause me to sin. That's the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That's the prayer that Jesus answers. When it comes to temptation, did you know there are, it's a four-step progression? In fact, it would speak of it there in verse 14. And I, pay you, I pray you pay attention there. Because it says, but each one, notice again the word each one, every single one of us here is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. There in verse 14, you see the first two steps of temptation. It's a progression. You know where temptation begins? It begins in the heart of a person. It begins in the emotions of a person. It's strictly a feeling temptation. Did you see that? Let no one say when he's tempted, and notice he's tempted by God because God himself can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Number one, write the word desire. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away. That, that, that word drawn away means he's forcefully pulled away from God from his own emotion. It's a desire. Whose desire is it? His own. <laughs> It's not someone else's. It, it, you're tempted because you have your own desires. You know what those desires look like? Sinful desires. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of lust, the desires of your sinful nature that want to be satisfied. The flesh that always, always has a desire to now crave an appetite, something that would satisfy the feelings of the flesh. You're drawn away when your flesh wants to acquire something to satisfy itself. It's an emotion and a feeling. That's why our desires must be in constant control. Remind yourself of that. 
What is it that you allow in your heart, your feelings? Our desires have to be our servants, never our masters. There are three enemies that we're constantly always against. What are those three enemies? It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we always like to blame the devil for everything, right? But notice here, the devil's not even in the picture yet. What your real problem is this, the flesh. That's where the battle is at. You're losing the battle when it comes to the flesh. These uncontrolled appetites are the problem. This is when we should begin to deal with sin in our lives. You know when you begin to deal with sin in your life? When it's just a desire. When it's just a feeling. When it's just a want. When it's something that emotionally you want. You know, the world tells you, you know what, just follow your heart. It's probably the worst advice they can give you. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know why many people are led into temptation? Because this is going to make me feel good. Because I want this. Because this is going to bring me pleasure. Because this is going to satisfy me. When you want to satisfy your desires outside of God's will, then that will get you in trouble every time. Be careful that you don't try to satisfy your desires outside of God's plan for your life. What are we to do with those desires that maybe oftentimes come into the heart? The Bible says there's only one place where those desires belong at the cross when you crucify the flesh. Galatians 5.24, you know what Paul says? And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That desire I crucified, that sin nature, I died to that. I don't live for that anymore. I'm not looking to satisfy that desire. It starts with a desire in the heart, but then look at the second step in verse 14. It says the word entice, which is the second word I want you to know. It's deceived. You start with a desire, and then you're deceived after. You're trapped. The, the word there, entice, it speaks of a fishing hook or a, where you capture or catch with a bait. You go out fishing, how do you catch a fish? With a bait. And the bait drags you away. It lures you away. It entices you. You're deceived. You think that that is the real thing. You think it's going to bring you pleasure. You think it's going to satisfy the flesh, but it doesn't really. Know this, temptations oftentimes don't look like temptations. Sometimes they look harmless. Sometimes it looks like something that's good for you, but it's not. Just because it looks like it's good for you doesn't mean it's God's plan for your life. And this is why it says you have a desire, but that desire then leads you to being deceived. Why? Because it goes from the heart to then the deception that takes place in the mind. You see why both have to be on guard, the heart and the mind? The desire begins in the heart. The deception happens in the mind when you justify that desire. Well, this is okay. Look at what other people are doing. That person was unfaithful. Or they messed up. Now I can do it the same way. You see, the deception happens in the mind. This is why we have to ask the Lord, Lord, give me the mind of Christ. Lord, renew my mind. So that the sin stops here in the mind. I put a stop to it right now. You know what the problem is oftentimes? Why it goes past a desire into deception, because in between that, we start to entertain sin. Be careful what you allow in your mind, that you don't entertain fantasies in your mind. You're not entertaining sin in your mind. 
You're not giving any room for the devil to come into your mind. But you notice what you're saying, like Romans 12, 1 and 2, what does it say? Don't be conformed, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. God doesn't only want your heart today. I want you to know this right now. God also wants your mind. It starts with a desire, then you're deceived. That's why the reason why so many people are deceived, because they don't detect the lies. They don't know the truth. Your mind has to be surrendered over to the Lord. And in Mark 12, 30, you notice what Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and what else? With all of your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. It goes from a desire to deception. And notice verse 15, disobedience. And when this desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. That is disobedience. You have desire, deception, and then disobedience. That's what happens when you allow it to be entertained in your mind. It goes from the heart to the mind, and then number three, to the will. Be very careful when it comes to temptation. You guard those three things, the heart, the mind, and the will. Because here in verse 15, it says when it has conceived, notice what it gives birth to, only one thing, sinful action from emotions where you're enticed to intellect, where you're deceived in the mind to the will where you actually disobey God. That's why it's important that we remember today, Christian living is a matter of the will. It's not a matter of feelings. It's not about what makes you feel good. We act because of what is right, not because of how we feel. That's what it means. We walk by faith and not by what? Sight. Do not let your feelings Make your decisions for you. And there are some of us that need to hear that today. Do not let your feelings make your decisions for you. You will fall into temptation every single time. Paul told the church in Rome, in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, make no room, make no opportunity as you put on Christ Jesus for the flesh to fulfill or to satisfy It's carnal desires. It's sinful nature. Why would you go into a place that only opens up the door? It creaks the little door open for you to be tempted. Make no opportunity. Give no room to it. Don't entertain it. It's not even funny. From a desire to deception to disobedience. And notice at the end of verse 15, what does it say? It brings forth one thing and one thing only. What is that? Death. Fall in the flesh is dangerous. It's deadly. All sin ever produces is one thing. It's death. Sin produces a killer. This is what sin does. You get your eyes off of the bay and see ahead what are the consequences. It's spiritual death. It's separation from God. It's not just a physical death that is describing here. This means an eternal consequence of separated from God for eternity. What he wants us to know that we're responsible for our own sin. Sin takes you where you don't want to go. It takes you farther than what you intended to go, and it keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. (laughs) That's why it's important that we guard our heart and mind, because this is the payout of sin. Romans 6.23, we know it well, for the wages of sin is one thing. What is it? Death. That is the payout. That's what sin does. Don't be surprised. Sin will do the only thing it does in your life. Destroy. 
That is what sin does. And that's exactly why he's telling them this. It brings forth death. How do we overcome temptation today? Two greatest weapons before we go on to the next verse as to how to overcome temptation. Number one is prayer. Do you remember where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, verse 41, what does he tell his disciples? Watch and what? Pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When you're faced with temptation, you know what you ought to do? Lord, we call upon you right now. I know my flesh is weak, but I don't want to enter into temptation, so I'm entering into prayer. Call on God, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is very weak. You need to pray, you need to call on God. But the second one, we see it, that Jesus himself gave us the example in Matthew, 41, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 10. When he's tempted in the wilderness, what happens? Every time he's tempted, he responds this way. It is what? Written. How do you fight against temptation? By prayer and also by hiding the word of God in your heart. Quoting scripture. Fighting against temptation with the truth of God's word. That you are to focus and then to flee from sin. You know, one of the things that we see through scripture, that regardless of what temptation is, God is so faithful even in temptation. And first... Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Don't think, no one has ever been tempted the way you're being tempted right now. It's common to man. It's happened before, but God is faithful. You're being tempted, know this, but God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, notice what he does. He'll always make a way of escape. You always make a way to exit that you may be able to bear it. That's how faithful God is that he says, you know what? I know that you're going through temptation. And as you are faced with temptation, you know what you ought to pray? Lord, show me where's the exit sign. God is so faithful. He makes a way of escape. And here he's reminding us, remember today, you've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live for yourself. You live for Christ Jesus. This life that you live, you're not living to gratify your flesh. You know what you're living to please? You're living to please only Jesus Christ now. It's sad in the generation that we live in because it's all about pleasing self. It's all about what makes you happy. It's all about what satisfies your needs. It's all about putting you first. You know what Jesus says? If you're going to come after me and be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then follow me. You ready to do that? Galatians 2.20, you know what he says? I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, it's no longer I who live. I don't live for myself. It's Christ who lives in me in this life that I allow live in the flesh. You know who I live it for? For the son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. I'm not living to please myself any longer. Consider God's judgment. The payout of sin is death. But consider God's goodness. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be swayed away. Don't be lied to. Don't be led by lies. Don't let the allurement build its case on the deceptive thoughts of your mind and empty promises. Do not buy it. Don't doubt God's goodness for your life, even as you're going through trials, even as you're being tempted. The moment you start to doubt God's goodness, you know what happens? You're attracted to the offers of the enemy. 
And it's better, we know this very well, to be hungry in the will of God than to be full outside of God's will. So there in verse 17, notice what he says. In contrast to the temptation that the flesh offers, this is what God offers. This is who God is. Every good gift and every perfect gift. Two times he uses the word gift because it's not something that we earned or worked or deserved. It is a gift. The word good means every useful, every beneficial, every perfect means complete and lacking nothing. Every type of gift that is beneficial, that is useful, is where? From above. Do not question God's goodness. He only gives good gifts there in verse 17. And if it doesn't come from God, it's not good. If it came from God, it must be good, even if we can't see the good immediately. Remind yourself that. I may not be able to see the good immediately, but I know this is of God. This is good. This is perfect in his eyes. And he's doing it in such a loving and graceful manner. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, notice, and comes down from the Father of lights who created all things, who dispels darkness, that's what it means, where God's goodness is at the center of what we see in his handiwork, whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This is amazing. And God's goodness doesn't fluctuate. Remember that today, as you're going through trials, he's not good in one season, and then in the next season, he's stopped being good. He's good always. He's the same. There's no variation. There's no variableness in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of us know that? He's never changing. He's unchangeable. So don't doubt God's goodness. God's gifts are better than Satan's bargains. In fact, Satan doesn't give gifts. He may be coming and try to put a gift on a platter for you by enticing your flesh, but it's not a gift. You want to know why? Because later you'll pay for it. You think it's a gift. You think this is pleasure. You think it's going to be fun. You know, how many of us know sin oftentimes is fun? In our whole life, we thought, man, sin was so fun. If you didn't think it was fun, you probably weren't doing it right. <laughs> but notice, you'll pay for it later. Remember God's goodness. Every good gift, every perfect gift, where does it come from? From the Father of lights. The next time you have a need, you know what? You should meditate on God's goodness. Wait on the Lord to provide. Be patient. Endure that trial. Endure that temptation. You've looked ahead. You saw the consequences of a compromise. You look above. Every perfect gift is from above. You know what you can look at? You can look within now. Realize you have been born from God. You have a new nature. Therefore, it's beneath the dignity of your new birth to live a life of compromise. It is beneath the dignity of your birth in Christ Jesus to disobey God. You're considering one thing, God's judgment upon sin. You're considering God's goodness, but notice you're considering God's divine nature. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might become the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Three things you see there very quickly. Of his own will, the will of God. This is God's will in regards to him giving you spiritual life. It's not something that you did, regeneration. It's not something that you deserve. We are born of God's grace, of his will. It's a work of God in contrast to the life of sin and of the flesh. It is of his own 
will by the power of the word, the will of God. And then you find there in verse 18, the word of God. And you know, we also see there in verse 18, it's amazing that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. You know what the first fruits were? They were the first fruit harvest that belonged to God. When someone would raise crops and a farmer would plant and harvest, the first fruit of it, what would it be? It belonged to God. You know what he's saying? You've been born again, so you belong to God now. You are his first fruit. You belong to him. It's the will of God, the word of God, but finally the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. You belong to him. There are two birth parents in the life of every person. There's the physical birth, and then there's the second birth. In the Bible, Jesus told Nicodemus when he came to him by night, you must be born again. He's reminding us there in verse 18, you have been born again, not by a corruptible seed, which is the flesh, but by incorruptible, which is the word of God. You have been born again by the word of God. Therefore, you should live a life in reflection to that new birth where you said, Holy Spirit, take over my life. Jesus, I trust you by faith. Jesus said that the first birth doesn't matter. You know what the, the one that matters is? The second birth. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? He gives us a new birth, therefore he gives us a new life. How do we say no to temptation? By saying, Lord, every single day, I want to hide your word in my heart. I want to be empowered by your spirit. I want to be strong to fight the battle. I want to use my spiritual resources. You can't blame anyone for your sin but yourself. We cannot make excuses. You know what we need to be doing? Being fed from the word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, I want to read this to you as we close. And he answered and said, Jesus saying this as he overcomes temptation, resists temptation, men shall not live by bread alone. I know some of you guys are hungry for lunch already. <laughs> but he says, men shall not live by bread alone, but notice what you live by as a believer. Don't close your Bible. but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You want to be able to fight into, here it is right here. This is the very word of God, the pages of this book right here that God wants to speak to you. This is what you should be getting fed from. Every single day, opening up his word and saying, Lord, I want to get fed today. Lord, feed me. I want to be strengthened for the battle that's in the spirit. Lord, I've been born again from this new birth, but I need to be, find that nourishment that comes from the word of God every single day. Lord, I'm hungry. I have an appetite for your word. I want nothing else. Lord, quench the thirst with the living water and give me more of this bread of life. Amen.